0: Welcome to episode 1465 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast on VanGrafts.com, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller of ESPN, along with Ben Lindbergh. Hello, Ben. Hi. We're going to be doing an email episode. Before that, though, there was a terrible and tragic event involving a baseball writer, many of you know, named Jen Ramos this month. Jen is alive, but in very serious condition. I'm going to read from a GoFundMe page that has been set up by Jen's family. On the morning of December 1st, 2019, Josh and Jennifer, husband and wife, were driving from Jen's parents' home in San Luis Obispo, leaving at around 11 p.m. to get to Merced in time to take care of their four cats. Unfortunately, they never made it. At around 1.30 a.m. December 1st, a drunk driver hit them on Highway 99 in Fresno, California. Joshua Eisen, 28 years old, married on January 2nd, 2019, was not to see his first year anniversary as he was killed on the spot by the drunk driver. His wife, Jennifer, was severely and critically injured. Jennifer sustained fractures on both lower limbs and pelvis, an aortic tear, had hemothorax and other injuries. That afternoon, they were wheeled to the operating room to repair the aorta, insert a chest tube for the hemothorax and debridement of the fractures. On December 2nd, Jen was wheeled back to the OR for the reduction of the left and right limb fractures. The left limb was not reduced due to some pulmonary oxygen saturation problem, and another surgery was scheduled for Wednesday, which is when we are recording this. Right now, this is just plainly awful news made more personal by how much their caring and persuasive voice has been part of the baseball world for the past few years. Jen was once introduced on a podcast as Jen Mac Ramos of Pretty Much Everywhere, <laughs> and that's about right. They've written at Baseball Prospectus and the Hardball Times, co-hosted Hardball Times Audio, and came on this podcast at least twice. And My recollection is that Jen was a commenter at McCovey Chronicles way back when I was too, way back before most of us were even writing at all. They were also the assistant general manager of the Sonoma Stompers the summer after Ben and I were there, so Mm -hmm. uh, hired by Theo. So as noted, there is a GoFundMe page. We'll post a link to it on Facebook. It's going to be a very expensive recovery, and I will retweet something right now so that it will be easy for anybody to find. And also, I mean, most of you don't need to hear this, but some of you do, and so I'm going to say it. Really just don't drink and drive ever. Not even a little, not if you think you're okay. I promise you any scenario you can imagine where you do not drive will be forgiven. You will be forgiven by anybody if you miss work, if if your car gets towed, if you have to wake somebody up, if you have to be a bother, you will be forgiven.
1: I've never driven in my life. You can get away with that.
0: Yeah. you Well, you and can, yes. (laughs) You will be able to forgive yourself. And if you don't do that, if you drive drunk, then something can happen that you just won't be forgiven for and you won't forgive yourself for. It's just such a consequential decision and you should know better. So just just don 't do it don't ever do it don 't even cheat don 't even convince yourself just this once don 't think why it 's hardly ever it is just a terrible, terrible, terrible decision don 't ever ever do it so that 's that
1: yeah, I was very sad to see that Jen has been on this podcast a couple times, a couple rocky's preview episodes, I believe, and used to host the hardball times audio podcast or or co host it at least and I hope that Jen will be okay eventually. It's gratifying, I guess, to see that the community has kind of uh, come forward and supported this GoFundMe, but I'm sure much more support would be welcome. So, again, check out the show page or Facebook group. We'll have the link to that page there.
0: All right. Okay. Well, let's, I guess, let's talk about baseball. Sure. So the stove is sort of hot. Can I – you guys think uh, like last winter, I think you did an episode where you talked about how the stove was was getting hot. And I sort of paused on that because I'm not sure in the metaphor that the stove is the activity, you know? (laughs) Like I don't think that the activity is the stove. I don't think it's the True, it's the people
1: gathering around the stove.
0: So the origin of the hot stove – Mm-hmm. as i understand it is what is the origin of the hot stove i my recollection <laughs> is that the hot stove predates free agency and all that stuff that the hot stove yeah. was a was like people sitting around in the winter talking baseball talking baseball exactly yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the stove pre-existed transactions.
1: Yes, I think that's true. Well, there were always transactions, but fewer. Yeah. So, yeah, I I think that's true. They're clustered around the stove trying to keep warm while they have their baseball conversation during the long, cold winter months. And, yeah, maybe we've kind of conflated the activity with the temperature of the stove. I think it sort of works, though, because if nothing's happening— then there's not much to talk about, and there's not much warmth there. I mean, I guess the the stove is a stove. It's a literal stove, so it's warm, presumably regardless of what's happening in baseball. But it doesn't really warm us. If there's not much happening in baseball, or at least not much positive <laughs> happening in baseball. So for me, it kind of works to, okay. to tie the stove to the activity. Yeah, I'm glad we talked it through. You've, you've talked me into it. Okay. <laughs> so stuff is happening. We've had a, a few signings since we last recorded, and all of them met or exceeded, I would say, expectations contract-wise. First, we had Mike Moustakis, who when we talked about him in our contracts draft episode, we were kind of joking. You joked about how maybe he would get the multi-year contract that he's been seeking these past couple off-seasons. Maybe he'd get it all at once and he'd land a six-year deal or something, but he kind of came close to that. He got a four-year, $64 million deal from the Reds. And then we saw on Wednesday a couple NL East pitcher signings. So Cole Hamels signed with the Braves, who have been one of the more active teams so far. And then the Phillies responded with an even bigger signing, and they landed Zach Wheeler for five years and $118 million. And not even
0: the biggest offer that he got. Yes, the the White Sox
1: apparently had an even bigger offer out there that he spurned because his wife is from New Jersey reportedly, and this would bring him closer to that. So obviously bad news for me on my offseason contracts pick of under on Zach Wheeler on whatever the MLB trade rumors prediction was. It ended up well over that. And all of these really have come in over. And and so for the past couple winters, I believe, the Fangraph's crowdsourced free agent contract predictions have been over-exuberant. They've been over-optimistic as far as what players would make. And the market has been depressed and slow-moving. And yet this year, it seems like, as often as not, hitters and pitchers are exceeding what they were expected to earn. So Moustakis had an average crowd-sourced salary expectation of $32.6 million, which was right in line with what Kylie McDaniel, who was doing the write-up, saw. And then Wheeler, and uh, Wheeler was you know, number nine on Kylie's free agent list, so it wasn't like he was low on him really. But Kylie had him at $68 million, and the crowd had him at $77 million and then Hamels I guess is right in line cuz he was in line it looked like for a 2 year 30 million dollar deal instead he got 1 year and 18 million so a little higher aav for a, a shorter term contract but so far this is what we're seeing and you know we saw Will Smith make basically what he was projected to make and Granted, the reliever market has been more robust than the market for other position players and types of pitchers in the past couple of years, but still there was that. And then, of course, there was Yasmani Grandal, who got the deal that he seemed to be seeking last offseason and ended up settling for a lot less. So when you put it all together, we could paint a picture of a free agent market that seems to be thawing out a bit or at least moving more quickly than it has of late.
0: Yeah. When we did our contract prediction game, I mean, we got to pick the the contract. We we got to pick only the players that we felt most certain that we were right about. Mm -hmm. And thus far, yeah, you had Wheeler, you took the under and, and he's over. And Jose Abreu, you took the under and you will get credit for the under because he accepted the qualifying offer, but that was at $28 million and Abreu immediately signed a, a, what was it, three years and $50 million? Yeah,
1: 50, 51, yeah. So
0: he he took the qualifying offer, but he Mm -hmm. ended up signing for, you know, double what, what it was predicted that he would get as a, mm-hmm. uh, as a free agent. And then I took the under on Yasmani Grandal and, and he's over. And then I took the over on Moustakis and Gibson and they're both over. And so Odorizzi taking the qualifying offer is the only exception there so far. Now, what do you make of the non-tenders though? The non tenders yeah, thing? Because a lot of, a, a, a few of those, a, a, a large handful of them, some number of them really surprised me. And that would seem in, in, uh, to be an indication that, teams are are not spending and that like they consider you know dollars spent on players to be a bad idea (laughs) instead of (laughs) like uh instead of uh you know fair market value for some of these players who were pretty good last year so that would seem to go in the um opposite direction yes probably less so but still it was kind of shocking to see some of the players who have been non-tendered or released because like jonathan vr wasn't even non-tendered right he was just
1: He was put on waivers and traded to the Marlins. Oh, okay. So he was traded. Yes,
0: Like I said, a lot of things happened while I was away
1: (laughs) Yes, so that was sort of surprising I think there were 55 players non-tendered And for those who don't know what that means Basically, arbitration-eligible players Players who have enough service time to qualify for arbitration Teams have to decide to say Yes, we will offer you a contract And then we'll go to arbitration to figure out How much that contract will be Or we'll exchange offers and we'll settle on some amount And if you just decide, well, this player is going to make more in arbitration than we think he will be worth to us, then you don't have to tender a contract. You can say, we release you, we non-tender you, and then that player becomes a free agent. So there were 55 of those non-tenders, and I got some data on this earlier because I was curious. And just back to 2009, this was the highest number of players non-tendered at a non-tender deadline. It's not... That convincing or that clear, like there was one year, like 2010 was only a a few fewer players than this. So it's not wildly out of line with, At least one past year and The quality of the players because I also Looked at like the preceding Year wins above replacement player Total and there were some Years where if you add up all the warp Totals of the non-tendered players They were actually better on the whole than This year's crop of non-tendered Players but last year was A fairly high number and a fairly Good crop of players and this year Was an even higher number and an even Better crop of players and so As a two-year trend, it sort of looks like teams are deciding, yeah, we're not going to go to arbitration. We are going to replace these arbitration-eligible players with some youngster, someone we developed and think can be just as good as this more veteran player and can make the league minimum. I will say maybe there are more arbitration eligible players than there were several years ago. I don't know whether that's true, but it, it could be true, right? Because there have been a bunch of young players coming up and getting a lot of playing time. And then there are also just more players, period, in the majors, just because bullpens are so much bigger. Granted, a lot of those guys are sort of cycling on and off rosters. And so they're not necessarily getting a full season of playing time or service time, but maybe there are more players arbitration eligible and so maybe as a percentage of our eligible players it's not as unusual i don't know that's just that's mm-hmm. just speculation but yes it it did seem like a lot and it is a lot so that would suggest that teams are okay going with youth and inexpensive and inexperienced players as opposed to paying for them but then we have these other deals mhm okay so I don't know what to make of it because like if if this were a few years ago and we saw these contracts, I don't know that we would think they were odd or anything because we used to just do that simple dollars per war math where we would all say, well, a, a win on the free agent market these days, it's going for $8 million. And so Zach Wheeler, regardless of how good you think he could be, he really has been that good. Like if if you go by Fangraphs War, over the past couple of years, he's been a four to five win player. I think most people probably don't think of him as having been that good. If you go by Baseball Reference War, he's been more of a three to four win player. But even if you say he's a three or three and a half win player, as he's been the last couple of years, and you just do the division, then it seems like, well, yeah, sure. He is the sort of player who should be making 23 or $24 million a year. And yet, Now that's just so hazy. I don't really know what a win goes for anymore. We don't really bandy those numbers about so much because – It's almost like we were all talking about what a win goes for on the free agent market and then teams decided, well, we're not playing on that market anymore. We're just going to count what a a win goes for on the pre-arbitration players market, which is almost nothing. That's the type of player we're going to get. And so it's almost irrelevant what you have to pay for in the free agent market. So I don't know. Is it that we have just all accepted What this market is now like we all just kind of lowered our expectations and so these contracts are exceeding our lowered expectations and maybe players are accepting these deals when they wouldn't have in the past couple off-seasons because they've seen how those off-seasons went and they've thought, okay, well, the offers that we thought would be out there aren't out there anymore, so we're not going to sit around and be the next Dallas Keichel or Craig Kimbrell. We're going to take the offer when it's out there in November or December. So I don't know how much of this is the market is back to what it was or this is a response to what the market has been.
0: Yeah, I think that it helps to think about these deals less from the dollars and more from the years, though, Uh because, you know, years are the more uh, when they're in there doing their discussions. It's usually more about years than dollars. They figure out the dollars as they go. But years are kind of what they're fighting for. And years are like in the collusion case in 1987, part of it was that nobody was giving anybody years it was like they would just give them one year one year offers and I don't know last year I don't know I I haven't looked at this so I don't know maybe there were a a normal number of multi-year contracts but I don't know I don't sense that there were and this year what we've kind of been surprised by is that everybody's getting their years you know Yasmani Grandal is a catcher in his 30s and he's getting four years and Mike Moustakis is a 31 year old third baseman who's going to be a second baseman now and he got four years and Zach Wheeler is a pitcher with a long injury history, and he got five years. And so, mm-hmm. those are those are I think significant. And we getting two. I mean, it's important as well. It's important to the union. It's important to the players. It's important to everybody that the dollars are there as well. But it probably is. I don't know. It's probably not that important whether it's like twenty three or twenty two or twenty four. If you're looking, if you're trying to like gauge the temperature of the industry, it's more whether teams are willing to commit to players for, you know, the amount of time that players of that caliber are used to being committed to.
1: Yeah. And it's odd because, again, if you do that old dollars per war math that we don't seem to do that much anymore, then it makes sense that Mike Moustakis would be making $16 million a year because he's been at least a two-win player, a two to two and a half to three-ish win player in each of the past three years. So that is what someone like that should be making, or at least that's what we would have said a few years ago. But what did he do differently? This year to land this Kind of contract that he couldn't land The last couple years I mean granted I guess what the first of those Years he had the qualifying offer attached Right but that wasn't the case Last year and it wasn't like He hit better than he's Ever hit before this year It Wasn't like he played more games Than he's ever played before I mean what was it about Mike Moustakis's 2019 That convinced the team And one would think more than one team, right? Unless you think that the Reds just were so in love with Mike Moustakis that they blew the rest of the teams out of the water. Like they must have thought that there would be some offer in that region in order to bid that much. So, so what was it? Have teams' behaviors changed? Cause it's like, I mean, the Reds were trying to win last offseason. They were one of the most active teams last year. They were making a lot of trades, bringing in players. And so I, I don't know exactly what it means that it worked for Moustakis this year, unless it's like, well, he showed that he could play second base. And, you know, he played, what, 300, 400 innings at second base and did okay. Like, uh, it didn't look like he couldn't play that position. And maybe these days teams think, well, with the shift and with the new rules that, lead to fewer collisions on double plays turned at second base. Maybe more players can play second base than we used to think. And so used to be that second base was like a premium up the middle position, and maybe now it's just not. You can just stick Mike Moustakis there the way that the Brewers did, and it'll work out fine. So, you know, he demonstrated that he could do that. Is that the thing that was missing from his resume? that team said, oh, Mike Moustakis can play second base? All right, here's four years.
0: I think uh, you should put a little calendar reminder in for like seven or eight years from now, and then we'll call and we'll ask the Reds. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Because I would like to know the answer to that, and I don't (laughs) know that I trust that I could get the answer right now.
1: Maybe someone will leak me their scouting reports again in 10 years yeah. and I can look back and what they thought of Mustakis at the time. But that is the perplexing part. Like it's not necessarily that you can't imagine why a team would think he's worth that much. It's just why now when he's a year or two older and not really noticeably better than he was before. So what does it mean? Does that mean the market is completely different or is it just that there was one team? One that team was, one time. Yeah. Yeah really in the market for Mike Moustakis right now and thought there was an opportunity in the NL Central and that Mike Moustakis was their guy. I don't know. It's hard to generalize from a single signing, of course, but it's hard not to when it's Moustakis, who has been one of the focal points of the frozen free agent market of the last couple of winters, and suddenly he's cashing in. So...
0: Yeah, I mean, if you're just thinking about the Reds specifically, the Reds specifically last year, they had, in 2018, they had Joey Votto at first, Scooter Jeanette at second, and Eugenio Suarez at third. So even if you could convince yourself that he could play second, which there wasn't really much track record there, you didn't have a place for him at second, you didn't have a place for him at third, and you didn't have a place for him at first. And now, if you're the Reds, one year later... Well, Jose Peraza hit two thirty nine, two eighty five, three forty six yeah. for you. And Scooter Jeanette gone, got traded, or yeah, he did get traded. I didn't even know if he got traded, but yeah, <laughs> he did get traded. And then Joey Votto got got old, and so you're not going to replace Joey Votto. But mm-hmm. now you have a place where you probably you're thinking in two years you're going to need a first baseman, and so you're now you're not now you're not just looking at Mike Moustakas and saying well he's a. He's a pretty good player. We can find room for him. You're saying, well, the worst spot in our lineup was second base. So we're not just replacing replacement level at this point. We're probably replacing less than replacement level. And we've got a place to put him in the last half of the deal. It makes a lot more sense. Now, it's probably not right to focus specifically on the Reds because there were 29 other teams last year that could have uh, done some calculus and maybe they would have found some place for Moustakas. But uh, to answer that specific question, that might be why the Reds would be excited to give him four years this year and maybe a little tentative last year.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And as for Wheeler, uh, we've talked a bit about how maybe teams are over optimistic about Wheeler or expecting too much or, or projecting too much when it comes to Wheeler. Like, I don't know that I see another Garrett Cole here waiting to be unlocked, but I understand why people think he can be better than he's been. And he's been pretty good over the last couple of years. Like, he, he hasn't pitched 200 innings, he hasn't had super low ERAs, but he's been good, he's been valuable and his most severe injury problems seem to be behind him somewhat. So I get it. And Ben Clemens wrote for Fangraphs recently about how you can envision making some changes to Wheeler and making him better. So he's like a strikeout per inning guy. And just based on how hard he throws and how much movement he gets and his spin rates and all that, you could think, well, maybe he could be a 10 in strikeouts per nine innings, 11 strikeouts per nine innings guy. And Ben pinpointed well when he gets ahead of the count maybe he throws too many fastballs or he doesn't elevate his fastball enough and That's the sort of tweak we've been talking about with so many pitchers over the past few years. I don't know that it's as obvious as it was when Cole was with the Pirates and he was throwing his sinker all the time and everyone just said, we'll have him throw his better pitches more and have him pitch up in the zone more and he'll be better, and he was. I don't know that there's that kind of transformation coming, but you can certainly envision if he stays healthy and keeps pitching, why he could be better than he's been. And again, he's been pretty good. So the Phillies need pitching help and they need a lot of other things too. So I don't know... To what extent whatever budget limitations they have imposed upon themselves i don't know whether wheeler precludes that it seems like they should still have a decent amount of payroll room before they start even getting into competitive balance tax territory but i think they did need to make at least one pitcher move and now they have so i don't know that this uh cements their status as a favorite or anything like that obviously the braves have been very busy too and the nationals are sort of in limbo right now as they wait to see what happens with Strasburg and Rendon, but they seem to have a lot of payroll room to work with, but nice to see that the Phillies off season spending spree last year was not just a one-time thing because they had a, a lot of money to work with. I, I missed this also while I was gone. Drew Pomeranz signed a four-year deal. Yeah, that's another one. Another probably four years, this trend. four yeah.
0: years for Drew Pomeranz. And you know, Abreu also ended up with three. So You know, multiple years for a thirty, you know, two-year-old or whatever he uh, is—I forget—probably close to Mm -hmm. thirty-two-year-old first baseman is also out of character for the last couple years. So,
1: yeah, Pomeran's Fangraphs crowdsourcing had him at eleven point six million, and Kylie had him at sixteen.
0: Oh goodness! So I'm writing about this uh, for ESPN for probably uh, early next week, Mm -hmm. so I'm not going to get too specific about what I think, but I'm just curious if you could pick. One pitcher for, you know, like your your fantasy team or whatever. And that pitcher is either Zach Wheeler re-signing with the Mets or Zach Wheeler signing with the Phillies. And we're only going to focus on like, you know, like FIP. So we're not talking about run support or defense behind him or anything like that. Just who who is the better pitcher? In your mind, who's the better bet? Zach Wheeler staying in New York? Or Zach Wheeler going to a new team? I think probably going to a new team. Yeah, and I do too. I feel like everybody's going to get kind of excited thinking about, you know, like like you know, like Ben was saying, like the changes that a new team might make to mm-hmm. uh, to his repertoire, or that um, you know, new his exposure to new mindset or new data or new tools or whatever. Uh, right. Not that the Mets might not have had that, but now he he doubles his exposure because he's already seen what the Mets have.
1: Yes, right. I think that's true, and and that's something that we talked about at some point on the regular LP show this past oh, offseason. You and I well, did as well. Maybe yeah, this podcast too about whether whether it's flipped so that you now have more faith in someone who's changing teams instead of someone who is staying with the same team, which is maybe what you're writing about. But it is ju- yeah, just because of this whole era of data and technology and everything, and maybe if a player goes somewhere else and he's exposed to new voices and new approaches, then he's more receptive to that. And if Don't talk anymore. Okay. All right. We'll read about it early next week, I'm sure. But I think that Wheeler and also Pomerans kind of maybe fit into this paradigm of teams paying for future performance, paying for potential more so than paying for past performance, right? I mean, again, like you can justify Wheeler's deal just based on what he's already done, I think. But the fact that there seemed to be so much interest in him. Seems to be a product of teams thinking that they could get more out of him. And Pomeranz is someone who really made himself into this appealing free agent in like 25 innings or something with the Brewers this year, right? Because I mean, again, no one was talking about Drew Pomeranz as a, a big free agent or a promising player at all. Particularly, I mean, I know he's he signed deals before, but like you know, when he was with the Giants. This season, he had a 5.7 ERA or something. Then he goes to the Brewers, and they move him to the bullpen. And, you know, he's been back and forth a bit between the bullpen and the rotation. But the Brewers move him to the pen, and he is dominant. I mean, he struck out 15 guys per nine innings in his 25 innings. And so it seems like the Padres believed in that version of Pomerans. They thought, we're, we're signing that pomerans, not the previous pomerans and so the question becomes like well how much of a sample do you need to believe that this is the guy and now you have this new data that can show you essentially the quality of a pitcher's repertoire in an outing or two so you don't necessarily need a big sample but can you get yourself into trouble there where you extrapolate from a part of a season and say well he's got good stuff and he did it for 25 games so that means he'll do it for the next four years or does it mean that he could do it for 25 games but he can not actually sustain it for four years there's still something to be said for a track record and a resume i think so i think those things are kind of coming into conflict now mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to do some emails, I suppose. So I guess this one is very much on topic, and maybe this is too much overlap with what we were just talking about, but Eric asks, a question that may be a bit too conspiracy theory related, with the rash of free agent signings, are the owners purposefully spending more to quash the rumored collusion, or is this just like any other offseason? season? So the idea that <laughs> owners are spending so that people will not accuse the owners of not spending or, you know, you could to make this less nefarious, I guess you could just say, well, there's all this uh, tension between labor and management and now that all that is ramping up as the cba negotiations approach and so maybe uh teams are saying well we should spend so that we appease the players and so they won't be mad at us and won't strike i I guess that's a a hypothesis you could have
0: so so it's like they're just playing like they're just playing possum for the by the way okay can we talk about possums (laughs) okay my dad's dog caught a possum And uh, my dad's dog apparently catches possums sometimes. And so my dad's dog caught a possum. And uh, as sometimes happens, bit a little too hard. And so this possum was dead. And so my Mm. dad, you know, like made sure it was dead and then threw it in the trash. And then in the morning, the trash can lid was open and the possum had had gone away. (laughs) This thing was all the way, like, no, no, I did not realize they actually did this. I thought that playing possum was just like, Kind of an ex- like I thought they just sort of pretended like they just went yeah they, they just closed their eyes and went limp but their entire body shuts down for hours wow yeah huh. like they actually go catatonic for so, hours and so this dog I mean like by, by the way I left out an important detail my dog does not like to catch a possum to give it up my dad <laughs> likes to cat and my dog likes to catch a possum and then have it for a while and play with it and so my dad to get an animal out of my dog's his dog's mouth, I keep saying my I keep saying my dog when it's my dad's dog and sometimes I'm saying my dad when I mean my dad's dog. Yeah. So just be clear who who everybody is in this story. Your dad did not catch a possum. My dad's dog holds the animal very tight in its teeth and then my dad has to pull and tear for like sometimes 20 minutes to get the animal out of the dog's teeth. And so this possum was playing dead, playing dead, while its body was being tugged back and forth. And it's it was in the iron grip of a dog's jaw. Huh. And it just kept not doing anything. It just kept chilling and waiting for its moment to escape. It's an incredible thing.
1: Wow. Huh. That's so, interesting. Because, uh, yeah, I've, I think I've read that sometimes this can come back to bite them so to speak i guess not literally because they might play dead on the road like when a car's coming and that's not a good place to to play dead because you might actually end up dead if you get run over by a car but i guess if it's a dog bite then this this works this is an adaptive behavior so i've been, to the possum well, for getting know, away
0: but i've been really struggling to figure out what the evolutionary benefit of this is because it seems to me that most of, you'd get eaten. You'd right? get eaten, right? Most yeah. of your enemies, they want to eat you. They don't care. <laughs> They're not in it for your feelings. Yeah. And so it seems like playing dead is the worst possible defense <laughs> to almost everything. And if 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 just hypothetically, imagine that it's actually really good, possum's the only animal that figured this out. If it's good, how come no other animals do it?
1: Well, we do it, right? Humans have done it, I guess. We, but wait humans, we we don't wait. We don't well, go
0: catatonic, though. It's no, not a biological I mean, you might, response. You might play
1: dead if uh, if you get shot or something. You might oh, pretend to be dead so that someone doesn't shoot you again. But but humans generally are not eating other humans, so it's it makes a w- sense. Weird thing to me. Context, yeah. 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 All yeah. right.
0: <laughs> so you think uh, the 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 question is is are the owners just sort of uh, faking uh, so that they get through the crucial? Period. It's almost like an it's like election year politics where like Mm, all your behavior changes because you've got an election coming up and then you get all the business done in the three years after the election.
1: Because owners could be saying Well we want to squeeze the players But if we push this too far And there's a work stoppage Then we're all going to lose money And so we might as well give a, an extra year or two To Zach Wheeler or Drew Pomeranz, Or whoever right now And if that helps assuage this situation And then we avoid a work stoppage And we can keep making money hand over fist Then it will benefit us in the long run
0: See the, the simpler conspiracy theory That I've wondered about is Do you just sign a bunch of players now because you're expecting a work stoppage and so you know you're basically going to get a year discount
1: (laughs) right yeah i mean that's possible too you sign a four-year deal now and it's like well we're we're not going to be paying that fourth year so we're not even gonna we're gonna shut down the
0: league in in two years so we might as well just enjoy it while we can so the (laughs) problem i don't even want to engage with this conspiracy theory but (laughs) it seems to me that part of the problem here is that A lot of the numbers that we see, they only mean something to us relative to our expectations. And so if you pay, so for instance, like we were just talking about, I don't know what Zach Wheeler is actually worth, except that I've seen hundreds of other contracts sign. And so I can put it up against those hundreds of other contracts and say, is this normal or is this not normal? If you just like, if you just pulled somebody who had never heard about baseball before and been like, Zach, we only got $160 million. What do you think of that? They'd be like, I don't know. What's a baseball player worth? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so if you're the owners and your plan is to save money by raising salaries and then cut them again later on, it's going to look a lot worse when you're cutting them because then everybody's like, hey, weren't we getting more like four months ago? That's, kind of the situation they're in <laughs> yeah right like i mean in a weird way i don't know the, the economics of all this is very complicated but one of the narratives of like baseball salaries is that like 80 percent of baseball players are totally underpaid because of this arbitrary system of rules that they've set up to suppress salaries for everybody except for those few people who make it to their 30s mm-hmm. while still being pretty good and at that point Those players cash out, and the reason they cash out, the reason owners have paid them is because, I don't don't know, it's like one of the stories is that it was just sort of like everybody was going along to get along. This was the system that everybody was happy with, so owners would pay a lot of money for it. Or maybe the scenario is that they can't spend it on anywhere else because they've set up this system where they can't really actually acquire the players they want to. It's all very weird and convoluted. But what you had is a situation where these veterans were being paid like 50 times what their younger peers were being paid. And they were being paid that because that's what the market said. But the market was so artificial. It was so weird and mm-hmm. limited and restrictive to everybody else that it wasn't really an accurate market. And so you could have gone through that period of like the last 20 years and been saying, well, like 80% of players are underpaid. And these 20% that hit free agency you still don't really know what they're worth. You only know that owners are paying them that because they can't spend it anywhere else. And because maybe this is like how you keep labor pay piece, but you don't really know is like, is Jason Marquis really worth that? I don't know. You don't know. (laughs) And it all only makes sense in as much as you have a pattern of behavior. You know what other teams have been willing to pay in the past. And it gives you a sense as much as possible of what the market bears for each of these players. And So if you were the owners, I mean, if you were really cynical and you were the owners, you would just not want to give an inch because you would want to reestablish the norms as being lower. And Mm -hmm. so by reestablishing the norms as higher, you're just setting yourself up for the collusion conversation again in two years. But also, it also sounds very collusive. And (laughs) it seems to me that they shouldn't be colluding. Like they have way too much money to collude. (laughs) <laughs> they Like, if they want to, I don't know, do whatever they want to do with their money, that's fine. But it feels like when you get really rich, you shouldn't take unnecessarily
1: illegal risks. <laughs> yeah. Well, to me, right, I guess from a negotiating perspective, you'd probably, on the one hand, you make the players maybe more determined and you rally the union and you increase their unity and their willingness to strike. And so if you're the owners and you think that a work stoppage actually costs you money maybe, then maybe that's bad. Maybe you should be the hardest liners you possibly can be because it will give you more leverage in the negotiations because uh, players will be so desperate to get anything that you know they're starting from such a disadvantaged position then they will ask for less in theory, maybe. But I think that, first of all, in the history of baseball, I don't know that owners have ever really acted except in sort of short-sighted ways a lot of them for the most part like i don't know that they're looking years down the road and i don't know that individual teams unless they were colluding to spend more money (laughs) unless they were all saying hey let's make it look good for an off-season or two here i don't know that individual teams owners front offices would come to that conclusion themselves because They might think, well, will my signing Drew Pomeranz for four years right now, is that actually going to forestall a a work stoppage? Or am I just going to cost myself some money while the getting's good here? I might as well just uh, make as much money as I can. Might as well squeeze these players for all that they're worth while this system is in place. Because who knows, the CBA will change in a few years and then maybe we'll have a, a different system. So I don't know that you could get that many owners and front office people to think that way where they're putting like the the collective group of them in the future forward rather than just hey let's get the best deal we can get right now i don't know that the history of baseball shows that they're actually good at, at acting in that way against their own short-term interests and yeah. individual interests so i don't know that i buy that really
0: <laughs> yeah my semi-optimistic take on all this is that Owners want to spend. I think that owners do want to buy things. They want to spend their money. Like it's not really that much fun to be a billionaire if there's nothing good for sale. Mm-hmm. And so they have these teams, and they like to sign famous players, and then have press conferences. They like that process. And something got in their ear over the last couple of years that said, like, this is not smart. You're just playing the suckers, or whatever. And so they they all like kind of. They all said for a couple of years, oh, the, the cool thing to do now is to be cheap and wise and um, to not sign these players. And I think they found it really unsatisfying. I think it was annoying to some owners that they didn't get to have their press conferences and that other teams won when they thought, "Ah, oh, if I'd sign more players then my team would have won. I think it's probably really annoying when you don't win the World Series and this winter before you sat around, you know, telling everybody how smart you are for not getting better players and Mm -hmm. so my somewhat optimistic take on all this totally speculative no evidence whatsoever is that they just didn't they tried it and they didn't like it and now they're going to go back to being owners that's my that's my hope
1: could be yeah i mean it's early and all this could swing back the other way who knows but i think i mean it could be like a lot of this is cyclical and maybe if there were a bunch of teams like if if it were the case that a bunch of teams had just decided that we're rebuilding right now we're not trying to win this year we're not in the market for the top free agents then maybe those teams that were in that bucket two off seasons ago well maybe now they're ready you know they're ready to spend like the white Sox, for instance right the white Sox were a rebuilding team and now they are rebuilt to the extent that They're really trying to sign people. And yeah, I know they made an offer for Machado last year, but it it wasn't really a competitive offer. Now they're making competitive offers. So that's an example of a team that maybe is just in that position right now where they want to win enough to invest in free agents. So it could be that it's just a cyclical thing and that was a down cycle. And now there are more teams that are in that sweet spot. I don't know whether that's true. <laughs> I don't like, you know, are there are the Braves for instance are, are they in any greater position to spend now than they were last year? Uh, probably not, right? They're in about the same position they were last year. Uh, we could go team by team. I just don't know if there are more teams in that group now than there were in each of the past two off seasons, but it's at least possible because you wouldn't expect there to be the same number of aggressive buyers every single winter. Yeah. I mean, you, since you said the Braves, the, what the Braves did do is
0: they made a lot more money last year than they made the uh-huh. previous year because they made yeah. the playoffs and they drew fans and they're going to draw fans again because they made the playoffs.
1: The other thing is, if there were a conspiracy and teams were trying to lull players into a false sense of security when it comes to free agency, why would so many teams still be talking about fiscal responsibility and fretting about the competitive balance tax? Why would you have the Red Sox saying they need to trade Mookie Betts or lower their payroll? Why would you have all of these front offices saying that they don't have flexibility, they don't have payroll room, they're looking to get under certain targets? We're hearing that still, I think more than we used to and that's kind of confounding because we're hearing those things even as some signings are actually happening now so again there are some encouraging signs here but some of the underlying issues and the reasons why teams would not be devoting as much money to free agency as they used to are still there the improved player development the concentration of production in the younger members of the league the lack of a direct connection between off-season spending and revenue it's all somewhat difficult to square with the behavior we've seen so far but but that behavior is also kind of encouraging. All right, step last? Yeah, sure. This is a quick one.
0: They'll take a data set sorted by something like A, R, A, N, S, or O, B, S, class And then they'll tease out some interesting data, but discuss it I was looking up, I don't remember why, the worst innings that any team has had. Uh, So the worst performance by inning, I should say, that any team has had over the last 20 years. And so I looked at, um, you know, a T-OPS+, which is your OPS in the split relative to your total OPS. I was looking at this for pitchers. And so I just looked for by inning, sorted by T-OPS+, all innings showing up. So as you would would probably not be surprised to learn you know like the the worst inning that any team has had was extra innings extra innings is its own category in this split and uh extra innings you usually have a much 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 you always have a much smaller sample across the year it might only be a few innings and so uh you know as i'm going down this list it's all some team in extra innings some team in extra innings and i'm scrolling and then you f- after like 30 or 40 of these you get to a, a few first innings which isn't that surprising because We've talked about how first innings really are a, 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 a difficult inning for some pitchers that it does. There there really are pitchers that you've got to get early and that can be gotten early. That was a stat blast from about 700 episodes ago. And so you get your first innings and then you've got your random like Toronto's third inning in 2007 and Cleveland's sixth inning in 2006. Just a couple of those. And then about number 70 on this list is the Mets' ninth inning. This year. So the Mets, this year, their ninth inning was a OPS, T OPS plus of 142. (laughs) Uh, So, relative to their overall, they were 42% worse. And so I wondered about this. So, I went and I looked, and over the past century, because this was only the past 20 years, so over the past century, the Mets' ninth inning performance relative to the team's overall performance is the worst. In the century, in a century So the they were at 142 The next worst was the 1927 Detroit Tigers At 141, the Tigers This was 1927, so of their 78 ninth innings that they had 48 of them were start were pitched by Starters, it was a very different time And then you have the 1928 Boston Braves At 138, and, and you know, no one else Is really even close, so the Mets Very bad, now of course we know that The Mets ninth inning was quite bad because Edwin Diaz yes. <laughs> was their closer, and that was a huge story. But, of course, Edwin Diaz only pitches in safe situations, which means that it wasn't just Edwin Diaz. They, they, everybody in that team who had a chance to pitch in the ninth inning pitched very, very badly. So, yes, there is Diaz, but you also have uh, Yuri's Familia was quite bad, and Robert Gazelman was quite bad, and someone named Tyler Batchelor was uh, was also quite bad. Someone named Drew Gagnon faced 19 batters and allowed five home runs in the ninth inning. That was very bad. Paul Sawald was bad. Jacob Rame was bad. Steven Nagosek was bad. Jason Vargas made it there a couple times. He was bad. And Jacob deGrom, he made it to the ninth inning one time. Can you believe that? Jacob deGrom only <laughs> makes... Right. It's a different era. I We said this last year too. I think that yeah. last year it was the same thing. He Maybe he didn't have a complete game and he had like a 1.7 ERA. And I think we said this exact same thing. It's a different era, and it still is that era. <laughs> he faced three batters in the ninth inning, two of them homered. Uh, that is a 985 TOPS plus. And uh, I was going through. I didn't get a chance to finish the search, but I was going through, and and I couldn't find anybody yet with any TOPS plus in any split this year. At any level of of plate appearances, worse than Jacob Degrom's, unless they had an infinite OPS, like a one batter and allowed a home run. Everybody else is is was better or worse or whatever than Jacob Degrom. So, uh, in the ninth inning, so it was a team wide failure, and uh, you know I just I just I feel genuine sympathy and sorrow for the Mets because so much of the season no matter how you look at the mets you just keep coming back to the ninth inning and you go oh that was a pretty good team and oh he did good and oh and that was a surprise and and wow their run differential and oh and they could have in their third order and then you get to the ninth inning and it all falls apart yeah. which which you know that 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 you normally you would say well that's their that's their dumb fault for not doing anything but they went out and got the best closer in the American <laughs> League i just don't see how mm-hmm.
1: you can do this game <laughs> so mean yeah, that is, uh <laughs> that's pretty frustrating. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, like the Mets had one of the most predictable seasons, like their yeah. record, they ended up with what, 86 wins. And that's very close to what they were projected to win. And they had this roller coaster season. It was like a disaster. And then they were one of the hottest teams and then they were cold again. And, and they ended up almost exactly where they were supposed to end up. But I think it, was so frustrating because it was an up and down team and because of those ninth inning failures. And because that Edwin Diaz trade was like, that was the the highlight of the offseason. That was like the big move where they pushed their chips in and they said, we're going for it. And it backfired pretty spectacularly. And there were a lot of people who didn't like that trade at the time, but none of them thought, Edwin Diaz is going to be an absolute disaster. So <laughs> that's pretty frustrating. And if he had just been decent and everything oh, yeah. else had been the same, probably a playoff team or you know potentially wild card team.
0: If he'd if he'd um, slipped on a banana peel in the first day <laughs> of the season and Maybe, yeah, and not, I mean he would have. They would have made. They probably. I mean, probably you throw. <laughs> You know, generic. I mean, look what Mark Melanson did for the Braves. They just picked up anybody who was available at the trade deadline, made him the closer. He pitched like a league average pitcher, and that would have probably been enough. And then they'd spend the whole winter bemoaning how they got knocked out of the playoffs in the division series. And if only they'd had Edwin Diaz, because what they really needed was a lockdown closer. And they would have like they would have gotten to live with the satisfaction of realizing that they had been successful and that their failures were were only the fault of a banana peel. <laughs> yep. All right, Seth Lugo, by the way, dominant in the ninth inning.
1: The one oh, exception. Yeah, right. super good in the ninth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they tried to throw him as often as he could. All right. Alex says, this question might be too hypothetical to even think about. I doubt it. Alex, have you heard this podcast before? That's uh, that's a tall order. But I hope that I can get some semblance of an answer. Imagine there's a supreme international law that makes everyone play baseball and everyone starts with equal access to the sport. In this hypothetical, how good would Mike Trapp be relative to the whole world? Would he still be among the best 10, best 100 players? Statistically, he probably wouldn't keep his number one spot. I'm also assuming that MLB is the only professional league I know it is unanswerable, but I hope to gain some insight into what it means to be the best in the world at a sport.
0: Yeah, so it feels like the answer is is, gonna, is that it's going to be unsatisfyingly high how many players would be better than Mike Trout. Yeah, probably. Like even <laughs> if even if you take out the world and you just say there's only one sport and mm-hmm. now it's baseball in the United States. Yeah. Then I don't know. It's not looking
1: good. No, because it's right now it's just it's a minority of the world's population is ever exposed to baseball, even ever considers that baseball is an option. I mean, maybe it's something they've heard of, but there's no cultural value placed on it. There's no real route to becoming a professional. There's just no history of that area of the world producing major leaguers. I mean, the the world's population is coming up on 8 billion now. And what percentage of those people ever even contemplate a career in baseball? Like, I mean, the, the population of North America, Wikipedia, is telling me, and this is lumping in a lot of other region. I mean, this is Mexico, U.S., Canada, but also the Caribbean and, like, other baseball hotbeds, Venezuela, Dominican Republic, Cuba, Panama, etc., is, like, 600 million people, something like that. And then, you know, maybe there's another 130-ish million people in Japan. So you're talking, like, less than a billion people in the world are even from places that placed any emphasis on baseball, that kids would ever grow up thinking, I want to play baseball. What is it, like a, an eighth of the world's population, something like that? I mean, I know that some people play baseball in other places. There are baseball programs in Europe and even China and other places, but it's so, so far down the list of even sports that a kid would consider playing, let alone professions, period. So, You're talking one in every eight people in the world, maybe seven, eight people in the world, even thinks about baseball. Baseball is even on their radar. So if you just had baseball everywhere the way it is in the U.S. right now, presumably you'd have eight times as many people, right? You'd have a a player pool that is vastly larger than it is now. And if you said baseball is the only sport and every athlete can only play baseball, then, I mean— yeah.
0: Right. Well, the, I mean, the proof that, that that last part is big is so the Dominican Republic has 11 million people and yet produces very nearly as much baseball talent as the United States does. Yeah. Because that's the sport that they all was. So the way I think about it sometimes is the, the it, you can trust that there is not like, so I think we've been asked before whether there are like Mike Trout level athletes who just never pick up a ball like never Mm -hmm. play at all like never and i mean that's kind of what this question is but i'm meaning more like domestically so who just never play a sport and they just don't know that they have this magic ability and i always think well no there's not really because all the incentives are if, are pushing you. If you are that good at baseball, all the incentives are pushing you to play to become a great baseball player because there is no other job that you get that's going to pay you as much. Like I was when I was doing the research for the players that Mike Trout passed in the career war over this year, you'd run across stories where like uh, uh, Frankie Frisch was uh, trying to like he almost quit baseball when he was 24 to become a doctor, and mm-hmm. because it just at the time. Being a doctor was arguably as good, and his dad would have yeah. preferred he was a doctor, and it right. probably would have made was more and he'd prestigious, have a lot right, of
1: equivalent or better, yeah. Yeah,
0: and for longer. And so at that point you could imagine that there'd be a lot of people who were great at baseball but decided not really worth it. But then we we changed things and now you get paid thirty million dollars if you're a great baseball player. And so you're not gonna like quit baseball if you can make thirty million dollars. You're you're gonna do it. All the incentives are pushing you to that, except that we also have football and we also have basketball and we also mm-hmm. have other sports that you can make similar amounts of money in and so all of those various athletes you know go get bled off to other sports and in the Dominican Republic they don't and so that like that's what that's what the incentive is it's to get as good at baseball it's not to get good at football it's not to get good at basketball it's to get good at baseball and they by having that you know incentive structure they produce like a third of the league and so you have to imagine that if the united states a a pot with a population of 35 times dominican republic and if you took out all the other sports that then we would have hundreds of more players that could play in the majors thousands maybe more players that could play in the majors better than any number of players that are currently in the majors right
1: Yeah, I think so. And even, I mean, under this current system, like if you're in the U.S. and you go to school, like you're exposed to some sort of sport or athletic activity. So there probably aren't a lot of people in the U.S. who just have no idea that they're athletic because they never picked up a ball or something. You probably have a pretty good idea. I think there are still plenty of people who just don't pursue that. They might be athletic. They might even be extremely gifted athletically but their inclinations don't lie that way or they do have some sort of parental pressure or whatever the family business, they have to take over whatever the family business is. And so it's just not really something that they consider. Granted, like if you're a freakishly great athlete, then A, you probably enjoy that because you're really good at it and maybe it's a, a path to status and popularity. And so I think probably a, most people who are, very gifted athletically, at least make some effort to to be athletes, but not necessarily as a career. I think there are probably a lot of people who have the potential to be professional athletes but decide they don't want to be because hmm. they like something else better. I don't I think I don't. You know? No, no. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't
0: think if you, I don't think if you're talking about players who could realistically become, you know, 10, 10 figure salaries. Ten figures, seven, eight, eight figure salaries. I don't think there are many of them now. I think uh, there are late bloomers. I think you got yeah. your, mm-hmm. you might have your your you know your Corey Klubers who there are inflection points along the way where uh, they could very easily have uh, have 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 quit and yeah. never. Or they can't developed. afford
1: to join the travel ball team or whatever, and they just can't keep up with the the more advantage. Kids and right,
0: so. right. And there's the developmental benefits. I don't think there's quitting quite so much as the developmental benefits that various, uh, various privileges afford. So yeah, there's that too. But I want to ask a, an aside. If there was no football and no, no basketball, what do you, the average height in the majors right now is six foot two. If there <laughs> was no, no basketball and no football, what do you think the average height of the of a major leaguer would be right now?
1: I think probably taller but not enormously taller, Uh, like, you know, maybe 6'4 or something. Like, I I think there's probably a point at which it becomes counterproductive, I think, right? I mean, I don't know. That's what they always say, at least about pitchers, let's say, and pitchers are tall as a group. But when you get really tall pitchers, like, because uh, you could say that, well, Pitchers should be as tall as possible, right? Because the taller they are, the closer they release the pitch to home plate and maybe the more force they can generate. And yet you don't see basketball-sized pitchers for the most part and maybe that's a cultural thing. Maybe it's uh, financial incentives. It's hard to be a baseball player. You have to pay your dues and ride the bus in the minors and all of that. And most players don't make it. But well, they go to the, think... they go play basketball though, right? If you're an right. athletic six foot nine
0: person, you you play basketball.
1: Yeah, but you'd think that some six foot nine people would and granted there have been some pitchers who are six foot nine but not a lot i don't know i mean they always say that like randy johnson was a late bloomer because he had to get his mechanics under control and he was so tall that it was hard and all those moving parts and everything and i don't know whether that's true or not but you know i, I mean i guess the the farther your appendages are away from your brain the longer it takes to send those signals but obviously very tall people are very coordinated and able to excel at basketball so i don't know that it would preclude being a pitcher
0: i feel so i feel like uh, i'm a little more extreme on every topic part of this topic uh, you than, think all the baseball players are these
1: giants uh, i, I
0: do i think that yeah. there'd be a lot more i think that in fact the game itself might even be more tailored to tall people in in some ways uh, i don't know how how it would be but it wouldn't surprise me if various tweaks in the game or in the coaching methods or or whatever actually became more beneficial to tall people if there were more tall people. We haven't even gotten into the 7-8s, uh, into trying to figure out a, a mathematical adjustment for the now <laughs> 7 eighths of the world that is yeah. baseball-obsessed. But
1: uh, do you feel like you want to give an answer yet? <laughs> Boy, I mean, we'll just look at how much better the talent level in baseball has gotten, even though— And granted, like, the player pool has expanded international markets have gotten into baseball more than they used to be and they've been allowed into baseball and of course baseball used to just be a, a white people only activity at the highest level and now it's not and now there are many more people and just the population has grown in general and so baseball has gotten better the, the caliber of play has gotten a lot better and pitchers throw harder and people hit the ball harder and everyone runs faster so that's just kind of you know doing away with the, the second Segregation that used to exist and just the natural growth of the population so if you were to suddenly fling the doors open to the entire population of the world and also get rid of all of their other options i mean look i think mike trout would still be a major leaguer i think he is so much better than all the current major leaguers that i have a hard time imagining that the, the caliber of play would would grow so much that mike trout would now not even be able to crack a roster
0: mm-hmm.
1: but I don't think he would be the best player anymore. He certainly wouldn't be historically great anymore. One more thing about the height thing, because like baseball, another thing people say about baseball is, oh, well, it's so great because it's the one sport, at least compared to basketball and football, let's say where you can be a small person. You don't have to be big and you can be Jose Altuve. And, Of course, that's true to a certain extent, but also kind of not true because baseball players are pretty huge compared to the typical person. Maybe not to the typical basketball or football player, but to the average person in the population, they're enormous and they've gotten a lot bigger over time and it's also if you were to try to do like a a correlation between height and performance or something in major league baseball you might find some correlation but it would be probably weaker than you think but that's just because the the short people who make it the the small people who make it they compensate in some way so Jose Altuve is just you know otherworldly great in other ways and also banging on a trash can. I don't well, know. Uh, yeah. But whatever he's 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 an outlier. He's really great and so he is able to be great, but that doesn't mean that you take a lot of other five five players and they'll all be good. It's just that he's the one who made it. So the the short players, the small players who are in Major League Baseball it's like looking at soft tossing pitchers or something. Well, the fact that they're even there is probably because they have great command and control or deception or whatever it is. They've already compensated in some way that makes them different from all the other 88 mile per hour throwers out there who never make it. Yeah. And also
0: they've, uh, the they've come out of a much larger pool of people, their same height. And so uh, the, you know, the three players that are five, seven are being pulled out of a pool of like a billion humans in the, um, you know, f- 800 players that are 6'3 or 6'4 are coming out of a pool of, I don't know, 100 million people. And so mm-hmm. relative. All right, I think that the answer is that Mike Trout would be the 19th best player in the world right now. Okay. I feel like that might be a little low. I would not be surprised if you told me that he was like number four or something like that. But, you know, I'm just, I'm thinking about like US soccer too, where uh, like th- there's, there's, just, there's nothing like, there's nothing special special about (laughs) about americans it's just like we have a combination of resources and interests and Mm -hmm. where we put those resources and interests we do well and where we don't it's like watching like downhill skiing in the olympics and there's no americans it's not because we're like losers it's just because (laughs) that's not where we put resources and and interest and so
1: like you were saying about the Dominican Republic and its tiny population producing so many major leaguers, it's the same thing with Olympic sports. And you have small countries population-wise that always excel in certain sports because they emphasize it and they have whole programs set up to scout potential players and develop them from a young age, which is another thing, by the way, like the, the caliber of play would be so much higher, not just because you'd get all the best potential athletes but they'd all be focused on baseball from day one it's all they'd be playing from an early age because no other sports exist so they'd all be instead of focusing on other sports and playing baseball during certain seasons they'd all be playing baseball from five years old and they'd be incredible of course this question is assuming right that Major League Baseball is staying the same size that we still have 30 franchises and 750 roster spots or, you know, now we're going up to 26 roster spots per team. But if you had a worldwide sport and it's the only sport, then you would not have only 30 teams. And so you could imagine that. The league would expand in size so much that the, the talent level would—well, the talent level would still, I guess, would be diluted by the expansion. But also, that wouldn't necessarily affect how good Mike Trout would be relative to the very best players. hmm Yeah. All right. So you said he'd be the, the 19th best player. Hmm. The nineteenth, and just to be clear, I mean that would actually
0: be an upgrade because he would be the nineteenth greatest athlete in the world. Since this is the only sport, and as yeah. it is now, it will never know where he ranks among all athletes. Well, just have yeah. no, there's no way of knowing. You can't compare. But what we do know is that he is not the nineteenth most famous, nor, yeah. is ni- nor is he the nor is he the nineteenth richest. No. Um, although baseball salaries are higher than other sports, but the marketing just isn't there. And um, so, if 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 he were interested in you know relative prestige to other athletes this would actually be a much better scenario for him i think
1: mhm yeah i i mean i'm going to say he's still a major leaguer he's still an above average major leaguer but i don't think he's even that good i mean just think of like every football player i'm every... going to take
0: that to mean not that i i know that you meant he's not that good he's not 19th not but 19th, i'm going to
1: yes. i'm hearing that is he's not even that good <laughs> no he's still pretty good but Just think of like everyone in the NFL, everyone in the NPA, just all these people who just seem – more skilled in a lot of ways in ways that don't necessarily i guess help always in baseball like again in baseball you don't necessarily have to i mean you don't have to block people like the amount of physical force you can inflict on someone else that doesn't necessarily matter and like foot speed still matters very much but you don't It's not as reliant on running, really, as football is, for instance. So there are certain skill sets that maybe Mike Trout is just so great at the things that he does. And even if you took... You know, your average running back or someone who who can run faster than Mike Trout and lift more than Mike Trout and and you made him a baseball player from the cradle, maybe he still wouldn't be better than Mike Trout. But if you took all of them who end up doing that instead of baseball, then certainly some of them would be, right? And then you take the entire rest of the population of the world and everyone who's playing soccer and a million other sports. I don't know that he cracks the top like 100 i don't mm-hmm. know that he does because uh, i don't
0: know that he does either yeah. i i i went with 19 but i don't know for sure i mean football <laughs> players are outrageous yeah. Like their <laughs>
1: bodies are nuts <laughs> right. and there's not a single baseball player who looks like a lot of football players just like that's physically. Right. Yeah. yeah yeah it's incredible it is really incredible wow yeah. uh, but again like i don't know that <laughs> you need to look like i don't know that you need to be in that kind of shape or that it would be as beneficial to be in that kind of shape as a baseball player than it is as a football player where you have to run far more you need that sprint speed far more you need to bash other people's bodies and withstand being bashed by other people's bodies like i don't know that you need to be an absolute monster in baseball but maybe i'm just saying that because to this point baseball players haven't looked like that but if you put every person in the world into the baseball pool and said it's the only thing that they could do then maybe they all would look like that and it would be helpful even so
0: you know it's a it's too bad because i i feel like if you com if you um took Our modern era of recording everything and having pretty good data about everything and having rankings and lists and, you know, everything's archived and we save all of our information. If you combine that with like two generations ago where the default was to play basketball or football in the fall, basketball in the winter and baseball in the summer or in the spring. And then I feel like you could use those two things, put them together and actually design a study to figure it out, to figure Mm. out. Somehow, how much overlap there is between, you know, like, great football players. Like, if you took all the great football players, are they were they actually all also the great baseball players and they had to choose? Um, or is there actually a lot of um, distinction in what skills each of these elite athletes have? That it's not just a coincidence or, a, you know, circumstance or choice that they choose these sports, but that actually... The difference between being the best in the world and being like the 10,000th is fairly small in an athletic sense, but actually fairly clear in a performance sense and that these players actually get sorted in a in a rational way. And so in fact, while Mike Trout is, would also be a great football player, you know relative to the the population at large, he just doesn't actually have that specific skills. That Mm -hmm. are required to play among the 600 best in the world and the same for football players that while they look like they could play any sport incredibly and to our by our standards they could they actually can't do that you know one important thing which is recognizing a pitch or
1: Mm -hmm. repeating a delivery those two skill
0: sets that define everything in baseball.
1: Yeah, and I know people probably bring up like every now and then you'll see like a a basketball player will swing a bat or throw a, a ball or something and it'll just look so awkward. They look like they've never done it before because they probably never have done it before. And that's not what we're talking about in this world. They would all be doing it from an early age. So it's not like you take the current world and you just say, "Okay, everyone, stop playing the sport you're playing. you all switch over to baseball. It would just be deeply ingrained. It would be the culture of everywhere the way it is in the U.S., but even more so. And people might bring up like Bo Jackson, too. Like Bo Jackson is just athletically speaking such a, an outlier in baseball. And I guess he was in, in football, too. Like even in football, he was a, a great athlete. But you'd get a lot more players <laughs> built like Bo Jackson In baseball in this world than you do now where it's basically just Bo Jackson and he's kind of on his own and and the fact that Bo Jackson was as good as he was is impressive because of his lack of experience and how he was splitting time between sports and he wasn't a great baseball player but he was a very good one for a while there so I think you'd get a lot of players like that and because they would be just training in baseball from an early age. Like I was just saying, well, maybe it's not that advantageous in baseball to be incredibly fit and muscular, but It probably is, right? Like, if you compare today's baseball players to the baseball players of 50 years ago who didn't lift weights and smoked and didn't care about nutrition and everything, I mean, these baseball players look like a different species almost compared to those baseball players when you look at old games. They're just so much smaller and lighter and thinner and much more so even than I think the population as a whole. The baseball playing population has grown and gotten stronger, and it would just explode if this were to happen. So, Mike Trout is like very impressive in how big he is and how fast he moves at his size for a baseball player. But just I don't know that he would stand out in a crowd if you had all the potential athletes in the world in baseball uniforms.
0: Yeah, such a such a good eye, though. Yeah, great I mean, eye. <laughs> a Great eye. I, yeah, I feel like that's <laughs> such a huge part of his. His game. It is. He yes, it is. And he sees pitches.
1: He sees he's getting slow. better and better at that. Yeah. yeah. But, well, <laughs> that's uh, in large part because he has seen so many pitches, and everyone would see a lot of pitches in this reality. But many baseball players have seen many pitches, and he is better at recognizing it than almost all of them. So. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. So we got through two questions, but they were good ones. All right, we had so much free agency talk to get to today that we didn't even get to the Dylan Bundy and Jerks and Profar trades. Although those two guys definitely among the league leaders in being younger than you think they must be by now. Dylan Bundy just turned twenty-seven. Jerks and Profar still hasn't turned twenty-seven. He's twenty-six. It seems like they must both be in their thirties by now, right? But I think that's probably because they've been in our lives for a long time now. They both came up in 2012, which was the age 19 season for both of them. And obviously things have not gone quite as planned since then. Bundy, of course, didn't get back to the big leagues until 2016, and he's been up and down since then. Pro Farm is 2014 and 2015, and he's been up and down. Kind of parallel careers in some ways, but definitely similar in that I still sort of do a double take when I see how old they are, which gives you some hope that maybe in Anaheim and San Diego respectively, they might blossom or blossom again. You can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreoncom wild The following five listeners have already signed up, but some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks: Suji Park, Jonah Bernhard, Zachary Morgenstern, Kathy Harden, and Philip D. Cowan. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. The voices came quietly.
0: Shut them down. My tricky young southerly wind came at me with its high whistling sound. I turned around to face it with real arrogance burning inside, and I drank in the whole.